Anyway, while they're collecting offering, um, like the video said, I don't know if you know it. I don't know if, if you've seen it. I don't know if, if you have felt it. But our family is under attack. Your family is under attack today. It's under attack by the evil one, the devil and his tactics. The devil has had a plan all along. And the ultimate plan all along was to infiltrate the family, was to divide and separate the family. And he started with the husband and wife back in the garden with Adam and Eve. He caused separation and insecurity even. And ever since then, all along, families have been broken. Families have compromised. Today we have what the world deems love. Love is love, right? That's what they say. But for us as believers and as, as, as people who walk in Christ, love is not just love to us. Love is not just some feeling. Love is much more than that. My love is rooted in truth and in God's word. As we will find this morning in our passage in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. I know it's Father's Day, and I don't have a typical Father's Day sermon where women, you get to take a break for the day and pick on your husbands and fathers. And I don't have a convicting sermon of fathers, you need to step it up and have all these statistics of where we're failing. But no, I'm, I'm preaching on the whole family. I think Mother's Day was six weeks ago, so I think it's okay to incorporate everyone here today, as we will see in our passage this morning, as, of husbands and wives. Uh, quite a controversial pa- uh, passage, actually. Let me read it this morning. Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 21 through 33. I'll be reading and and preaching from the ESV this morning. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to so he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Before we get into the heart of our, of our study this morning, I want to, to make some preliminary comments. And I want to set the, the stage and, and the context of our passage today. So my first preliminary comment is, let us be careful about our response today, of each section that is preached. Today we will first examine the role of the wife. So the first portion of my message today is geared towards you women. However, you men need to listen carefully, but not for the purpose of finding out what you can criticize your wife for. No. Instead, you listen to understand the role God has entrusted to your wife so that you can encourage her in it and pray for her. And let me warn you that if you do not take this advice, men, and you start getting on her case and pointing out her her failures, then you're you're going to be in big trouble later when I start to preach on the husbands. Because I can guarantee you, husbands are 
failing more in their role that God has given them than that of their wives. Secondly, be aware that due to the prevalence of feminist thought in our culture today, the subject of the role of the wife has become quite controversial. And that is even within the church. And when I say feminist thought, I am not referring to just the, the radical view of feminist extremists who espouse abortion for any reason and the ideologies of, of lesbianism. Instead, I'm referring to the general view of women and their roles that has become rejected by much of America today. You will know what I'm talking about when you start getting your toes stepped on and you start getting uncomfortable and asking, what am I preaching about? Third, be aware that many preachers are fearful of speaking on this issue because they do not want to risk a possible backlash. I know there could be some backlash today with what I'll be sharing. Some might say that because I am not a woman that I'm not qualified to speak on this issue. Fair enough. However, I have no doubt that I am very qualified to speak on the subject, and not because I have a wife who is here today, but because when I preach, the issue is not what I think, but rather what God says. When I do my job properly, you are not hearing my thoughts and opinions, but rather it's an explanation of what God has revealed in his holy word. You and I are both obligated to bring our thoughts and opinions into an alignment with what the word of God says, for he is sovereign creator and knows all truth. We're not to eisegete scripture, we are to exegete scripture. Next, let's set the stage and let's review some context here that is taking place in the book of Ephesians, and specifically chapter 5. So here Paul is explaining, challenging, and commanding his readers, including us today, to live according to the changes God made in us when he saved us. You find it here in Ephesians chapter 5, I believe, and... Verse 18, no, not verse 18. I lost my verse. But anyway, he's talking about living a life in the Spirit. And that's the idea here in chapter 5 is, what does it look like to live a life in the Spirit? And this is why he kind of goes on after that and talks about, what does it look like to live a life in the Spirit for the husband and wives? And then for the children and for the family and for the slaves and the masters. Because that was the culture at the time. We are new creatures in Christ and ought to live as such and quit living like we did before we were saved. In the specific section of the book, Paul has called us to careful and walk according to God's wisdom, like I've said, and not in foolishness of this world. We are to make the most of our time and opportunity God gives us during the, the, short, the short stay on earth. We're just pilgrims passing through, Remember? Life is too short, and we are too frail to be caught up in foolishness of self-centered living. But rather, rather, we are to understand and follow the will of the Lord. Secondly, God's will is not some mystical thing floating out in the cosmos somewhere. But rather, it has been revealed to us in the scriptures, and he has given us our God, the Holy Spirit, at salvation to prompt us to live accordingly. We're to be filled with the Spirit. That is, to be influenced and controlled by him. The Holy Spirit is to be the director of our lives, not ourselves. We've got to let go of the reins. We've got to move over from the driver's seat. Third, the evidence of being filled by him is in the hearts that break forth in music of praise to our God. And being always thankful for all things and in mutual submission to one another. The evidence will also come out in our relationships with one another, especially within the family. A man and a woman cannot create the kind of marriage that God has designed for them unless they are both filled with the Spirit. This is the idea here today. You have to be filled with the Spirit. You have to be walking a life in Christ, equally yoked. And that comes through each partner surrendering their lives and denying themselves to live a life in Christ. So, what's exactly, so what exactly is God's plan for marriage? We have to find out the answer and be able to understand 
that before we can make sense of the God-given roles he has given and entrusted to us, both husbands and wives. So look at our text this morning here in, in Ephesians 5. And we're going we're gonna to jump down to the very end here, and we're going to look at verses 31 and, and 33. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Do you notice something here? Verse 32 is a quote from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 is where God brings Adam and Eve together and institutes the first marriage. And verse 33 is the explanation of that. And I want to stop here and, and, and make note of something today. I'll be using a lot of scripture. Our main text today here is, is in Ephesians 5, and we will soon be in Genesis chapter 2, just for a brief moment. But I also will be using a lot of other cross-reference passages. And I pray today that you don't take my word for it, that you don't be lazy. That you get out of pen and paper and take notes. That you make yourself rightly approved. Don't be lazy. Go and find out for yourselves this morning. Don't take my word for it. Marriage is not so much about the two individuals involved, but it's about the glory of God. Your marriage is to bring glory to God, not to yourself. This is the reason why I'm always hopeful about marriages. Even the ones that are in turmoil and in danger of breaking apart. This verse tells me that God is much more interested in my marriage than I am. He has a larger and more important, and more important purpose for it. Any two people that are willing to follow God's design and purpose for marriage will have a wonderful and joyful relationship. Because that is always the side benefit, the effect of doing things God's way and bringing glory to him. The marriage will still take a lot of work, believe me. It's not easy. I'm not saying you will have some kumbaya type of marriage. It's hard. But God will use you in each other's lives to mold you into what you're supposed to be and fulfill your purpose in life. Of not only being just a husband and wife, but your individual purpose in life. You will fulfill the reason for your very existence, which many are searching for today. Also, did you know that there's no such thing as an irreconcilable marriage? There's no such thing. What it really is, is just one or both individuals that refuse to be reconcilable to God and their spouse. There's no irreconcilable marriage. It always takes just one and is not willing to live accordingly to God and their spouse. And a lot of times both. When husband and wife will not follow God's design, the marriage at best will flounder into just people living under the same roof, oftentimes acting as just business partners. Or it will fail completely and, revolt, and result in a divorce, which we're seeing today and the statistics are quite the same compared to the world outside. While it only takes one spouse to destroy a marriage by refusal to follow God's design, there is good news for the spouse that strives to follow God's design for their life. Because that brings glory and honor to his name. You being obedient to his word. You living accordingly. So remember, marriage is more about the glory of God than it is about the two people that are just married. The purpose of marriage has a divine objective. That objective can still be met, but ever since Adam and Eve's fall, every marriage starts out with a strike against it. We're fighting an uphill battle as soon as we start out in marriage. We're going against the grain. If the husband and wife each take a swing at the marriage in their own wisdom and power, they will strike out. You will strike out. If you're both not living a life in Christ, 
If you're both not living according to the Spirit, and you try to do things in your own wisdom and power, especially in marriage, you're going to strike out. Or very least, you're going to have a really, really, really tough marriage. But if they let Jesus Christ be the focus of marriage, and let the Holy Spirit be the one that guides them and empowers them, you will hit a home run. You will hit a home run. So back in Genesis, turn with me there, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, we find Adam and Eve in a great relationship. Genesis 2, 18 records, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Verse 20. And the, man, and the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every living beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not Ashamed. The scenario here God uses sets up Adam to know his lack of companionship and his need for someone who would be his helper, his complement. God then made Eve out of Adam's rib. This is significant because it shows that she is not independent of him. Paul comments on this in 1 Corinthians Chapter 11, verses uh, 8 through 9. Paul says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was a man created for woman, but woman for man. This statement right here, this very statement right here from Paul, is what many Americans reject today. It's what much of the world rejects today. It's repulsive to feminist thought and lesbianism. And it's the reason that many Christian women who have been affected by this ideology tend to think of Paul as a male chauvinist. And he's not worth listening to. They just write him off. The truth is that Paul not only elevated the position of woman, but also understood what God had said from the very beginning. And made clear statements about the role God had given to women. Paul did not compromise on the truth even in a culture that was prevalent with Gnosticism. And this idea of, of women um, seducing and, and using seducing spirits to preach a heresy. Paul did not compromise on the truth, and neither should we. And if you have a problem with this statement from Paul, that God created women for the man's sake, then you have a twofold problem here. First, you are in rebellion against what God has designed and righteously ordained. Righteously ordained. Second, you have failed to understand the incredible, incredible importance of the role God has given to you. You're not a doormat, woman. God has given you a role and a purpose in the life of marriage. No matter what the world tries to tell you, it's not being a doormat. You have been deceived into one of the devil's tactics that places premium value on that which is characteristically male rather than female. You see, Eve had no problem with, with the role that God gave her. But the role became a curse when she and Adam fell into sin. Prior to their fall into sin, Adam and Eve were completely open with each other. The word naked... In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, means without impediment. And that is a mental concept. 
is a lot more than not just having clothes on. The very same word is used in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, to describe the serpent as crafty. Adam and Eve were not selfish. They were not sinful, and they willingly served one another in the role that God had given them. But when sin entered the picture, so did its curse. And so did so many years of broken families, broken families and failed marriages. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, God places a curse on the serpent and then Adam and Eve. The aspect of the curse at the end of verse 16 relates to our subject this morning. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Look yourselves. Look there. While there is some controversy over the exact meaning of desire here, I believe the case is very strong for it to include the idea of wanting to control her husband. Because the contrast to it, and you see here, is him ruling over her. And so rather than being a compliment to one another, they were now in competition, at least to some degree. They were no longer, they were, they were now butting heads. I think this is evidence in, in Everyday life, everyday life, and especially in, in, in marriage, everyday life, because many times husband and wife, yes, we're individuals, and, and we have our own desires, and, our, and we want to do certain things with our own time and, and money and efforts, and oftentimes those desires, those, those desires conflict with one another, and there's a clash in their relationship, and it becomes a power struggle. God's design for marriage is against the curse of sin. Marriage, following the divine model, moves both husband and wife back into their proper roles, within which they again complement one another rather than conflict one another. Paul also explains here now that, Paul also explains here to have the ability to live in this manner, which is why we go back to Ephesians chapter 5, where we'll be for the rest of the time today in verse 21, verses 21 through 33. I'll give you a minute to turn there. I'm going to take a sip of water. So reading of verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The key is for all the relationships that occur within the family, and I think even outside the family, is to be out of reverence for Christ. The verb here is in the present middle tense. And so means to place yourself under another through the surrender of your will and rights to that of the other. This is what submission, as the ESV translates it here, means. The call for Christians is to submit to one another. We are to voluntarily and willingly place our rights and will in subjection to fellow believers because of our reverence for Christ. The Christian community should not be marked by pride and arrogance, but instead, because of their relationship to Jesus Christ, it should be marked by humility and courtesy as they seek out the best interests of each other, serving one another, because as Christ did not come to be served, but to serve. I am to no longer be self-centered, but God-centered, this results in me regarding you as more important than myself, which is very hard to do because I love myself. And as Paul states it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. In humility count others more significant than yourselves. All believers are to behave themselves in this manner with one another. But this becomes especially true when it comes to the role that God has entrusted to the wife within marriage. Look at verse 22. This is where it starts getting hard. Bear with me. Wives, depending on your translation, be subject or submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
Notice that the translators of the Bible have placed the word subject or submission in, in italics. This is because the word is not actually in the text, but it's applied so the sentence will make sense in English. The verb is applied from verse 21, and a more literal translation of it would be, be being submissive to one another in the fear of Christ. The wives to their own husbands asked for the Lord. That's a more literal translation of that, of verse 21 and 22. Be being submissive, submissive to one another in fear of Christ. Their wives to their own husbands asked to the Lord. The idea of the wife submitting herself to her husband flows out of command for her in, for her to be in submission to the Lord and therefore to other believers. You see, the ability of a woman to do what Paul describes here is dependent, is dependent on her relationship to God and being filled with the Spirit and living a life in Christ. In fact, this cannot be done without the Holy Spirit and living a life in Christ. Certainly, there are cultures where the woman or where women are subservient and obedient to their husbands. But many of times, that is out of fear or cultural tradition. It is not out of love. It is not out of willingly submitting and giving your rights over to your husband. Rather, it's oftentimes forced. Again, not out of love. They are dependent on their husbands and fear losing their provider oftentimes. And oftentimes they even fear losing their position in society and even their children. This is a culture that's prevalent overseas. Oftentimes women lose their position in society if they refuse to marry. And if they have kids, oftentimes they're either taken away or they're killed. Again, that's not love. So the submission called for in our text here is based on a love for Christ that is extended to the husband willingly. She, submit, she submits primarily for Jesus' sake because it pleases him and honors him. And secondarily, for her husband's sake. The Christian woman needs to realize that her serving her husband as a godly wife is a major way in which she serves Christ. So it is a voluntarily or voluntary submission to him in the same way that she submits to Jesus Christ. Also, Paul states the reason for the submission in verse 23. Look below. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. The idea of the husband being the head of being the head is one position, is one of a position of authority and responsibility. It's not one of superior to inferior. Let me, let me say that again. The husband, the idea of the husband being the head is one of position and authority. It's not one of superior to inferior. Again, this is not to say that, wives, you are a doormat. You may even have superior abilities and skills in many areas compared to your husband. Oftentimes, my wife has better abilities than I do and skills. But the question here is not one of ability and skill, but the question here is one of order and purpose. That's the argument today. I can do the same thing that a man can do, and oftentimes better. But is that the way... God designed it. Is that the way he purposed it and ordained it? Of course you can do it. By all means, you have the free will to do it. But again, is that the way God designed it and orchestrated it to be? Paul comments in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, that God the Father is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman. This is not arbitrary, but follows the order of creation. As Paul points out in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, 
And it follows the purpose of our creation as we have already pointed out. The woman was created to be the complement of the man and not the other way around. Again, I know I can face some backlash today. God will, hold your, God will hold your husband responsible for how he leads in godliness, in which we will get to, husbands, don't worry. But God is going to hold you, wives, responsible for how you followed his lead in godliness. Did you demonstrate your trust of Christ in your submission to your husband? Which Paul says in verse 24 here is to be in like manner to your submission in Christ. Better yet, the Apostle Peter, he's even stronger in his assertion with this idea of submission than the Apostle Paul. Look in 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses, no, chapter 3, sorry, verses 1 through 6. Peter writes, likewise, be subject to your own husband, so that even if you do, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. I just want to say my wife has never called me Lord yet. Um, I'm waiting on it. Uh. So certainly this is easier if your husband is a Christian who lives obediently to the principle God has in his holy word. But notice back in verse 1 that your submission takes place even if your husband is disobedient to the word. Or even if he is not living as he should. And perhaps maybe he's not a Christian at all. Again, no one says this is easy. And in fact, it is impossible unless you are filled with the Spirit. Again, I'm going to keep coming back to that. Yet this passage says that the way to win your husband is through your pure and respectful behavior. Your humble submission is what God will use to draw them to himself. Before I get to the husbands, let me quickly make, or let me quickly point out some limitations of this idea of submission. I know, I see some raised eyebrows. First, your submission is primarily to God, then to your husband. You cannot submit to anything that, you ask, that, that he may ask you to do that violates God's word. Again, you're not a doormat. As Peter and John said before the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than man. So that submission should not come in contradiction with the word of God. Second, your submission does not mean you are to allow your husband to abuse you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 11, Paul says, The wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, let her remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband. Again, in many commentaries and many studies of this passage right here, separation here is the biblical alternative to an abusive marriage. And I think that's the wake-up call for many men in, in, in the world today to get their act together. I've been in a home where my mom's been abused, and I've seen it. And I will add here that physically abusive men need some jail time. The first reason is because the God-given role of government is to be an avenger of evil, and it needs to carry out that role. And secondly, more importantly, the loving thing to do is to make the person aware of the seriousness of their sin so that they may repent and walk in holiness. A little jail time on earth 
for all the abusive men out there. A little abusive time on earth to be shaken up for the need of salvation is better than an eternity in hell. Third, submission does not mean you have to coddle an unbelieving husband so that they would not leave you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15 states, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. You're to live a godly life with all humanity and with all righteousness. If your spouse cannot stand to see Jesus Christ living in you, then you are free to let him leave. Again, you can't save him. Just be sure that it is the righteousness and holy living for Christ that is driving them away and not you. So turning back to Ephesians 5, we find verses 25 to 33 deal with the idea of the husband's role. That gives you an idea of kind of how much more instruction husbands need than wives. However, before we move on, the very end of verse 33 deals with the wife. And it says, let the wife see that, see to it that she respects her husband. I want to end with this section of wives that I believe few women really understand, really understand their importance of their influence on their husbands. Sure, we hear a lot of corny jokes about, you know, when, when husband and wife get married or when a couple gets married, then uh, the wife completely changes her husband's wardrobe, right? He's a totally different person. He's not even wearing remotely through this. I mean, look, I have a bow tie on. It's my wife's fault. Or even making his manners into something more socially acceptable. Wives, you have great influence. But I am referring to him being able to accomplish anything significant in his life. The saying, that behind, the saying that behind every great man is a good woman is, I believe, is not just a cliche. I think it's the general truth. Remember that you were created to be his helper, his companion that would enable him to function properly and accomplish many great things in life. Wives, we need you. I need my wife. I could not do many of the things I do day to day if it wasn't for my wife. Because in all honesty, behind all of our, all of our bravado and muscles, I don't really have any, and hard-nosed attitudes, I do have that, us men are generally fearful and very insecure. I'm very insecure. He may never admit it. Men, you may never admit it. But he wants and needs someone to believe in him, to give him a chance and encourage him to succeed. God has given that role primarily to his wife. Wives, if you treat and cherish, if you cherish her and treat your husband with respect, he will feel like he's able to conquer the world. But if you belittle him, if you tear him down, if you control and manipulate him, then you will either lose him or you will watch him shrivel up into a shadow of worthlessness. I have seen it. Needless to say, wives, again, I end with this, with the wives, you hold a great influence and power in our lives and our just individual personhood. Now the men. What time is it? Oh, wow. All right, my, my sermon's a little long today. I didn't, I didn't, I, I, communicate, I communicated that with the staff. Uh, my sermon's a little long today, but I figured if we can pay $500 to $1,000 to watch a, a four-hour football game or a two-hour baseball game, then we can sit here for free and listen to a 45-minute sermon. So, yeah. All right, men, husbands, we're going to look at the role that God has given to you. And ladies, I asked you earlier to refrain from poking your husband. Or no, men, I asked you earlier to refrain from poking your wives in the side and noting your failures and criticizing you. Instead, I asked them to pay attention so that they would know how to pray for you and encourage you in your God-given role. I'm asking you to do the same. Remember what I pointed out earlier from 1 Peter 3, that even if your husband is disobedient to the word, you are to win him without a word by your pure and respectful behavior. It's not through nagging. So consider how you might pray for him and encourage him. 
I'm going to read verses 25 through 33 again. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the church himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves, him, loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of this body, or of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Notice that in this passage, the husband is commanded to love his wife three different times. We have it once in verse 25, we have it a second time in verse 28, and we have it a third time in, in verse 23. Gentlemen, I will propose to you to start with that. If you fulfill your role, your wife will feel hers because it is easy to submit and respect someone that truly loves you. What kind of love are you to demonstrate to her, I ask. And Paul gives us three parallel examples to help us understand. First example is to love her like Christ loved the church. The second example is to cherish her like you cherish your own body. And the third example is love her as you love yourself. So we'll start with the first. Love her like Christ. The primary love we are to show our spouse is to parallel the love Jesus Christ has for the church. That is a standard impossible to reach without a close walk with the Holy Spirit. You cannot do this on your own power, husbands. No, it does not sound very, very romantic, and I do not suggest that you say this to your wife if you want her to feel emotionally close to you or if you're trying to set the mood. But the greatest love you can give her is when you become the channel of God's love to her. You love her not because of how pretty she is or for all the wonderful things she does for you, for how smart she is and the great life partner that she has turned out to be. All of those things are wonderful, and you should tell her those things very often. Please, I know, you should tell her those things very often. But your greatest reason for loving her is because God has placed it in your heart to do so. And he has orchestrated it to be like so. And ordained it to be like so. The ability of a man and a woman to truly love each other has also been perverted by our sinful natures. The result is that our love for one another ends up having a basis in selfishness and pride. We know this. And if you don't, then I tell you, you're selfish and you're very prideful. Because I am. When we tell someone we love them because of their beauty or how they please us, we are in reality declaring that our love is dependent on our own selfish pleasure. I love you because you please me. Again, I am not saying that you should tell your wife how much she pleases you. But again, I'm not saying that you should not tell your wife how much she pleases you. Excuse me. But I am saying that the love God wants you to have for your wife is far much greater than that. Also, notice that the, component of, the components of Jesus' love for, for the church in, uh, in verses 25 and 20, uh, through 27. And, and it's the components of sacrifice and, and holiness. It says in verse, 25, verse 25, and gave himself up for her. There is no greater love possible than laying down your life for a friend. We see this in John 15, 13. And that is exactly what Jesus did for the church, for us. That is why the scriptures continually point to Jesus' sacrifice of himself on the cross as the proof of God's love for us. And as Paul says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. Amen for that. This is a love that is centered in the best interest of the other person and not in yourself. It is selfless rather than selfish. 
gentlemen, do you, do you love your wives in this manner? I had to sit down and ask myself this. But the answer would be no, because none of us really do. At best, we can say that we strive to, and we're learning to. And I'm not saying that most of us will not quickly put ourselves in the line of danger and protect our wife from death or injury. But I'm saying that our love for her still tends to be more selfish than sacrificial. Let me give you a couple examples to prod your thinking. And again, these come from my own life. Your wife calls you to dinner and you find out she has cooked one of those experiment meals. Oh, goodness. She loves to do that. And maybe it's something you don't really care for. You get home from a long day of work. You work 12 hours that day. Maybe you work outside like me and it's hot and you're irritable and you just want a good, nice, fulfilling meal. What is your reaction to this? Are you thankful for your wife's service? Or are you more concerned about what you're going to eat? Because if she comes home and I have broccoli on the table, I'm not going to be in a good mood. (laughs) Secondly, you have been planning some event with your friends for some time. Maybe you're going fishing or hunting or watching a football game. When the day arrives, your wife has the flu. She's sick. She looks and feels like death. I recommend don't ever say that to your wife. How do you feel about the prospect of staying home and taking care of her and the kids? Again, some, for some of you, this is no big deal because you're a potato anyway. And it's like, good, I get to stay home. But for others, we love to hang out and be with our friends. We love to go fishing and hunting and football games. And it's like, man, I just bought these tickets to the Georgia game and Clemson game coming up, and if my wife has the flu, oh, my goodness. Third, you're busy reading the paper, which we don't really do today, I guess. I don't know. Who reads paper in here? Okay, never mind. Sorry. <laughs> or watching your favorite sporting competition, and your wife sits down and says, Honey, I have a problem. Do you, A, get excited that she thinks so highly of you that she wants your help? Do you do that? I don't. Do you, B, want her to go away and leave you alone? Or C, do you get a chill running down your spine that you could be in big trouble? Lastly, you have listened to your wife's problem and given her a very, very intelligent, logical solution, but she keeps talking about it on and on and on. And you thought you saw this last week. Do you, A, why doesn't she just thank me and leave me alone now? B, she's a bit dense today. She's a bit dense today. Okay, sorry. Or C, wow, the problem has really affected her. I wonder how else I can encourage her and let her know that I care. Again, I don't do C. Again, this comes from my own life. I, these are my shortcomings, especially with the food. I, I come home very hungry. Anyway... Gentlemen, to love your wife the the way Christ loved the church requires you to sacrifice yourself for her. A lot of times that's sacrificing your own desires and comfort. There's a price you will have to pay. There's a price to being a husband in the same way there's a price of being a wife. You will have to be humble and learn to put her best interests over your own. But isn't that what we're called to do and be as Christians anyway? Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 commands us to do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look, at, look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. The next thing is, is holiness. One of the interests that should be at the forefront in your love for your wife is her holiness. Look at verses 26 and 27. Jesus sacrificed himself for the church so that he might sanctify her. He wanted to be all that she could be. He wanted her to be all that she could and should be, sorry, which is without spot or wrinkle 
being holy and blameless. This is accomplished through the challenge of living according to God's word, walking a life in the spirit. Husband, this is where I challenge you. What are you doing in terms of promoting holiness in your wife? Are you leading her to church? Or is this one of the things that you do just to make her happy? You don't really care for being here. You don't really care to hear God's word and, and sing and praise with your wife. But no, you just know it would meet her needs and make her happy. Do you lead her in personal Bible study? Both by your own example and in your family or in family devotions. Do you pray together other than say grace before a meal? That's a big one. Do you pray together other than say grace before a meal? Man, there's power in prayer. And especially a husband and wife that pray together. Does your own walk with the Lord give her, give her a positive example to follow? Again, you're the head of the family, husband. You're the leader. What do you, what you do here will make a big difference in her walk with Christ. Again, she's not dependent upon you, but she does look to you. My wife looks to me to be an example of a way that Christ loved the church. Is your wife, if your wife is a professing believer and walking in Christ, you can certainly do a lot more than if she is not. But even, even if she is not, you are still responsible for leading her spiritually. You would not be able to say as much as to say as much because you do not share the same interest. But your life had better demonstrate the reality of Christ, and what you say had better be the truth spoken with love. Your walk with the Lord and how you treat her should do one of three things. One, attract her to salvation in Christ. Two, drive her away because of her rejection of Christ. Again, be sure it is Christ in you that drives her away and not you. And three, she thinks you're a crazed fanatic, which oftentimes my wife thinks I am because I watch sermons all day long. And she's like, why are we watching this? But she stays with you anyway because she loves you and knows no other man would treat her as well as you do. If you do not lead your wife in holiness, man, then you will be leading her away from it. And I can promise you the world is leading her away from it and your family. And that will wear even on a godly woman, even on a woman that is in Christ. An example of this is found in the life of Mark Twain. As a young man, he fell in love with a beautiful Christian girl named Livy and married her. Being devoted to the Lord, she wanted a family. She wanted a family altar and prayed at meals after she and Twain were married. This was done for a time, and then one day Twain said, Livy, you can go on with this by yourself if you want to, but leave me out. I don't believe in your God, and you're only making a hypocrite of me. Fame and affluence came. There were court appearances in Europe. Twain and Livy were living well, and Livy strayed farther and farther from her early devotion to the Lord. When an hour of bitter came, or bitter need came, Mark Twain said to her, Livy, if your Christian faith can help you now, turn to it. You know what she said? Livy replied, I can't, or it can't, my Christian faith. I haven't, ha I haven't any. It was destroyed a long time ago. You may not destroy the faith of your wife by your unbelief, whether stated or just lived in practice, but you will hinder her. Again, God's design for the family, husbands, is for you to lead in holiness, and he will hold you responsible for it. He will hold you responsible for it. This is, a, this is the part of this is part of what you are to provide for your family. To borrow a phrase from Stu Weber's book, Tender Warrior, you are not to just be a provider of provisions such as food and shelter, but you are to be a provisionary. You are looking ahead to see what will be needed in every area and every area of your family's life. You are to see the bigger picture and have a vision of where your family is going, both in life and for eternity, most importantly. 
You set the long-term goals and then lead and direct in the steps that will take your family to that destination. If you're not having some sort of devotional time together, let me give you some suggestions to get started because I can't just call you out and not help you, and not help you out. First thing is discuss sermons over dinner or at lunch after, after service. Second, discuss what you learn in your own devotional time when you eat together. Third, keep a devotional book at your dinner table and read that and read and discuss it while you eat. Fourth, read the Bible or Christian books to each other before you go to sleep or whenever else you have time. Husbands, you need to be leading your wives in holiness. I even say, even your kids, don't rely on the Sunday school teacher, which happens to be me. Don't rely on the Sunday school teacher and the youth pastor and the children's pastor. Those are good things. We have some of the best, we have one of the best youth pastors and children's pastors, I think, in the world. But you husbands are to be leading your families. Cherish her as your own body. Again, I told you it was a long sermon. You're to love your wife as Christ loves the church. You're also to cherish her as you do your own body. Verses 28 and 29 say, So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. It is a simple fact that no one hates his own flesh. We all nourish and cherish our bodies. You start adding up the time and money we spend on feeding and caring for and making our bodies comfortable. There's all the time you spend eating, all the time you spend sleeping, all the time you spend exercising, cleaning and getting your body to look decent. Again, we love and cherish our bodies. There's all the money you spend on food and health care, beauty products, I need my hair gel, and things to make your body comfortable, like air conditioning in the summer and heat in the winter. And let's not forget that when it comes to eating, I doubt any of us have ever met someone who will eat something they do not like just to punish themselves. Again, I'm not going to go eat broccoli just because, okay, you've been a bad boy today, so you need to go ahead and eat this broccoli. I'm not going to do that. I don't like it. It's gross. We might eat something that tastes bad, bad, but if we believe, we might eat something that tastes bad if we believe that it will help our body. I don't believe broccoli will help my body. But for the most part, we are always looking for something that will please our palates and satisfy our cravings. I love powdered donuts. Again, we cherish our bodies. Husbands, do you cherish your wife as much as you do your own body? Do you give her as much consideration as you do with what you eat, even? Do you spend as much time with her as you do eating or exercising? Are you concerned about how, as much about your relationship with her as how you look? Paul, again, brings in the example of Jesus Christ at the end of verse 29 and verse, 20, and verse 30. He cares for his church because we are members of his body. A husband is to care for his wife because she is part of him. We may not understand all of what, me, all of what it means in the quote from Genesis 2.24, repeated here in verse 31. But there is definitely some aspect in which two individuals have become one flesh in marriage. In, in marriage, he is part of her and she is part of him. So even from a more selfish point of view... For the man to love his wife is to really love himself. As Paul states at the end of verse 28. Think about that a moment, man. And gentlemen, husbands, fathers. Is there anything that you could do for your wife that would not ultimately come back to you for your benefit? Certainly there are some expectations in women that are so self-centered that they are not fit to live with. But in general... It is not true that if you treat your wife well, she will also treat you well. If you give consideration to her, she will also do the same for you. If you lead her in all godliness, she will be a more godly woman. If you love her as the scripture says here, she will also be able to 
easily fulfill her role in submitting to your leadership and showing you respect. That's what it comes down to, man. If you demonstrate sacrificial love to her, she was much more apt to sacrificially loving you in the same way. And I end with loving her as you, as you love yourself. Paul's third command to love your wife in verse 33, let each individual among you also love his own wife as himself. The arguments here are really the same. Everyone loves themselves. One of the more foolish things foisted upon our society by psychology is this whole notion about the importance of self-esteem. The idea that for you to accomplish something, you have to feel good about yourself. In reality, the term as used by modern society is really nothing more than another word for sinful pride. Certainly, there's importance in developing confidence in order to reach goals. I agree with that. But that confidence does not even have to be in yourself. It could be in someone else. As Christians, our confidence needs to be in God, his word. There is no lack and has never been a lack of self-esteem in the human race despite what psychology and culture tells you. It said it is just the opposite. Humans are by nature self-centered and very proud. We love ourselves. The Bible uses that fact as a pride to get us to understand that we need to love others. Again, love is love, right? The general command given by Jesus in several different passages is that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, right? Here, Paul applies that directly to every husband. You're to love your wife as you do yourself. So do you love yourself, husbands? I'll answer it for you. I think there's no question about it. And this, this encompasses not only all the things that you do to take care of your body, but also the things that you do to satisfy your ego. Men, we're to love our wives with the same intensity and devotion as whatever it is that gives you the sense of who you are whether it's work, sports, accomplishments, a claim of others, whether it's friends or finances, you name it. However, you don't demonstrate your love for your wife by working so hard to earn the money to give her a nice home to live in. Again, this is another countercultural thing. It's how I was raised. Make all the money you can, and that's how I show I love you. Man, when you're commitment to work strangles your personal relationship with your wife because you have no time or you have no energy left to be involved with her, then you're working because you love yourself and the sense of important the sense of importance work gives you. You're not doing it because you love her. And I will add that if you do have one of those women that demand a high standard of living and you are killing yourself to give it to her, you're still not loving her. She needs you to lead in holiness, not materialism. And that's whether she wants it or not. And that's the counterculture of what the world tells us today and the idea of marriage today. It's because you work hard and you provide for your family doesn't necessarily mean you love them. Again, that is good. We are to be a provider. But if you're lacking in the main thing, then it's all worthless. Because you don't get to take that house with you. You don't get to take that boat with you. So, gentlemen, love her the way Christ loved the church. Love your wife as you cherish your own body. And lastly, love her as you love yourself. Let me pray this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity and, and the privilege, indeed it is a privilege, of being able to share your word this morning. Uh, Father, I just pray that hearts in this room would be receptive into your, into your word today, Father, and that it would not really be my words, Father, and just my sermon, but Holy Spirit, that it would be your words, and that you would be the one speaking and penetrating and prodding people's hearts, that you would be the convictor and not me, that you would be the encourager and not me. I thank you for the people in this room, Father. I pray that they would go beyond these walls and love their families, that husbands would love their wives as Christ loved the church. So that wives 
will be able to submit a, in a husband that, that leads in godliness and holiness, that represents and is a picture of, of you, Christ. Again, we're, we're very selfish. So, Lord, I pray that you break us down, that you remove that selfishness in us and replace it with the sacrificial love that is demonstrated in, in your life, Christ. I thank you for the day. Go with us beyond these walls. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, sir, go ahead. Amen. Yes. Amen. Yes. Perfect example. Perfect example. And Reverend Wiggins, I was going to use your wife in my sermon. I, I thought about it. I really did. But I knew there was a lot of heaviness and, and emotion around what has happened recently. So I refrained. So thank you for standing up and, and thank you for mentioning Lewis Wiggins because, yes, she is a perfect example of a wife that and lives and walk according to Christ. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. I pray that you go in the grace and peace of Christ and that you go and love your families.